The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Well, my wife and I just finished binge-watching two seasons of the Netflix series The OA, which purports to describe the nature and effects of NDEs and how you can use them to repeatedly escape from the traumas of the life we're living here. It's quite a depressing understanding of things, really, because it suggests that no matter how many times we die, we are trapped in a multiverse with the same karmic relationships of good and evil, trapped by other personalities and locations acting out parallel lives that reflect the same addictions again and again. As far as we could tell, it had more to do with the world of trapped schizophrenic ghosts than with the nature of real NDEs. Fortunately, our guest today, Robert Kopecki, offers a refreshing alternative understanding to the nature and message of the near-death experience. Robert Kopecki escaped a traumatic childhood on the edge of San Diego, California, and has lived the life of a ski bum, factory welder, monumental sculpture fabricator, and underground cartoonist, all before becoming an award-winning illustrator, art director, and animation designer for clients like the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, the Cartoon Network, and PBS Kids. Three very different NDEs led him as well to years of study, meditation, and service. He's written two books on the subject, How to Survive Life and Death, and How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. You can find Robert's first appearance on NDE Radio at our archive past shows on October 20th, 2014. And you can find him as well on his internet site, Art, Faith, and the Coco Lion. Robert, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. Good morning. It's, it's nice to be back. All NDE experiencers always will tell you that. <laughs> yes. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you, Robert. Uh, Robert, let's begin with your description of your uh, your three near-death experiences. I'm sure you, you know, we talked about this a little before because I had I had spoken about the first two in some length at the first appearance on your show a couple years ago, and I hadn't gotten to the third so much. So I'll I'll kind of um, synopsize the first two and and be a little more detailed about the third one. There, they're all in uh, both books too. By the way, my first NDE happened. Uh, as a result of a car accident, and I experienced, I had an out-of-body experience where I saw myself being loaded into an ambulance, and then I was kind of shepherded away to a very heavenly location uh, for a kind of an interview of sorts. <clears throat> and uh, that took about a day. I was unconscious for almost a, a complete day in that one. Um, because of the out-of-body experience, I call that the gift of perspective uh, and how to get to heaven without really dying. There's three sections based on each NDE. Uh, the second one was a result of a, a, a very self-destructive lifestyle. I was burning the candle at both ends, and it was kind of a Roman candle. Kind of. <laughs> and I ended up... Um, collapsing on the floor of my apartment and, and experiencing being enveloped in a brilliant white cloud and having a, a life review experience where, where episodes from my life were shown back to me, these very cogent, meaningful episodes. And I realized uh, the importance of the eternal moment that we live in. And so I call that the gift of presence. 
uh, the third NDE that that uh, I don't think you ever quite heard was my least favorite. If one must have such things, mm-hmm. uh, for most people, I think a single uh, near death experience is plenty. But I guess it was my karma or the hardness of my head or something that led me to have to experience three. Um, in that case, I had been um, I'd been at a uh, Super Bowl party. And I went out, and this will tell you when this was, because there were pay phones. I walked out into a public square in a small town in Arizona, a college town, and I got on a pay phone to call my uh, fiancé, and I was assaulted by, a, like, a skinhead, you know, like a, a big thug, a large kid who was kind of inebriated, and he started to harass me, and I talked him out of it, and uh, he actually reached in and hung up the payphone while I was talking to my uh, to my fiance. I talked him out of it, and then he came back after I got back on the phone. He came back and he was quite violent, and I did I made a terrible mistake. I planted my back foot and I punched the guy right on the kisser and knocked him flat. And while the people around me in this uh, in this public space applauded because uh, this guy was uh, kind of awful. Um, I didn't realize that there was a van full of these uh, skinhead guys that had been watching the whole thing. And when I left to go home, uh, they followed me and drove up behind me and hit me in the back of the head with a crowbar or a tire iron, something like that. Whoa. And knocked me off of my bicycle headfirst into a curb. And, uh, According to the police report, because I was unconscious from that point on, they proceeded to to kick and stomp me for the the worst part of an hour. And the police apparently didn't do anything about it because some of these guys were off of a military base nearby and they all had similar life experiences. So they identified more with the guys that were kicking me, I think. Oh, my God. Um, And in that near-death experience, unlike the the previous two that I'd had that were... uh, they were quite illuminative or quite heavenly-like. Uh, this experience was more um, terrestrial or o- uh, almost subterranean uh, in a way, almost womb-like, in fact, in a way, which is kind of fitting for the nature of the experience. I was in this uh, space that was dark and warm and comfortable, and I was surrounded by a number of entities uh, in my in my previous two, I'd only had sort of one entity with me that I'd never really met directly, but I knew that I was under their care, kind of like a guardian angel. Mm-hmm. In this one, I was surrounded by a group of entities, and they were all telling me the same thing, which was that I had gone about things wrong and that I had to go back. Mm-hmm. And I had this sense of something terrible happening out there somewhere. Like in the in the next room, it seemed like terrible violence was going on, and I think that was my remaining perception of what was happening to me physically at the time. And I did not want to leave. I was I fully intended on staying where I was after three near death experiences in fifteen years, and a life of uh, considerable confusion as a result of them. Really, uh, I wanted to stay put. I wanted to stay on the other side, so to speak. But they insisted that I needed to go back because I hadn't fulfilled my purpose, which is the the third section of the book. This is the what I gleaned from that third experience was was the purpose of our life. 
and I felt as though I were picked up by a bunch of hands and pushed through a kind of a membrane that I popped through. And when I opened my eyes, I was laying on my back on this street in this Arizona town with an emergency medical worker over me who said, he's back. And that was my my third uh, of the three. As I said, they, they spanned over about 15 years, kind of equally spaced. And um, that was the gifts of purpose. And so I had these three kind of, uh, you know, classic motifs for near-death experiences, all completely different from one another, though, uh, which has informed uh, uh, my lessons uh, from them. Now, this last one, coming through a membrane, almost sounds like uh, being born again in a way. I, I wonder, did you feel like you were being judged by these people you, or these entities you met on the other side? Was it a was it a life review as such? Well, the, the, the second near-death experience I had was a definitive life review. I was in the midst of this brilliant white cloud, and I was shown these sort of boxes of time that played back these episodes of my life uh, that I had not been appropriately present for. And so it wasn't the greatest hits, you know. Uh, the third one, um, the first two, I did not feel judged whatsoever at all <clears throat> in any way. The third one, you could say that I perhaps experienced a bit more judgment because uh, these um, these angels were telling me that I had been doing things wrong, you know, and that I needed to go back, that there were certain things I needed to fulfill that I had not even approached yet in my life. And so in that regard, um, I was somewhat judged, but it wasn't a harsh kind of a judgment. You know, there was, there was no shame involved in it at all. And in fact, I don't remember experiencing any of those kind of human emotions or, or um, human sensations, uh, to speak of. In fact, I don't really remember having a body, per se, but still of being myself, of remembering it like through my own eyes kind of thing as, as I witnessed it. Was the implication at all, though, that you, uh, if you stayed, if you demanded to stay, that you would be punished for the for the life you'd led? Um, no, it wasn't. I did not have that experience. Like I said, really, no sense of shame, no sense of, of severe judgment at all. Mm. Just kind of a presentation of a larger wisdom or understanding of the way uh, everything works. I mean, uh, there's. In all three of them, I had certain uh, experiences in common. And having had the three different ones and hearing all the stories that I've heard now since the release of of How to Survive Life and Death in in 2014, I I know that there are certain things that all near-death experiencers have in common. And that is that we all have this sense of being enfolded in love, just an intense, pure love. Many of us uh, have, or most of us have, this kind of transcendent se- sense of connectedness, like like I did. This uh, this feeling of of being part of a larger mind, of being enfolded into a greater consciousness, of not having boundaries. Um, I think that we all get this sense of uh, shared purpose, this kind of lesson taught to us, and that we uh, we all have these kind of this kind of teachable experience where we receive karmic guidance. Mm-hmm. And I did in each one of those three 
experiences, I think, the, the spiritual perspective, spiritual presence, and spiritual purpose. And so uh, that's what I teach about um, as a result of, the, of, of each one. <clears throat> and by that means, by entering into each of these three aspects of our greater reality, we can approximate the experience of heaven here on earth at, at any time. So I don't really feel judged uh, ever so much, and uh, lots of times uh, my sort of human boundaries kind of vanish, and I feel very much enfolded into this world uh, as I did uh, on the other side, as it were. Right. Well, well getting more physics-minded, if you will, You've written that uh, um, you believe we are like customized collections of energetic quantum data, energetically overlapping one another, engaged in the field of consciousness. And I think that's, on the other side, that seems to be true. Can can we um, uh, operate on uh, on that basis in this world, do you suppose? Yeah, well, we are operating on that basis in this world. We just, it's, we just have a misperception problem here because of the form we're in. Uh, being a human being, I think, is a very demanding form. You know, we're constrained to the, to the way we work as far as our experience goes spiritually. Um, if you think about it, it's clear that we are part of you know, based on near-death experiences and <clears throat> and other such examinations of the quote-unquote paranormal, it's clear that we're part of a much larger kind of spiritual technology going on here. And when I get into the physics aspect of it, uh, that's what I'm talking about. Um, like I said, I didn't experience myself physically. I experienced myself energetically. Uh, the lessons I was giving were of a powerfully karmic nature uh, so I see uh, I see us as being these packages of karmic information packages of karmic data and we're all channeling divine consciousness we're all connected into this matrix of a loving intelligence uh, so to speak that is the eternal and everything comes out of consciousness every consciousness is flowing through us and expressing itself all the time through the unique packages of our experience, through these human packages in this form. Now, when I didn't have this form anymore, I was still myself. And so I perceived myself as being these karmic energies uh, that then my afterlife experiences reflected uh, to me. Near-death experiences are all custom-made. I know you've heard so many of them. They really are custom-made to each experiencer. And for yes, me, I, I, <laughs> based on my my karma, so to speak, you know. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely believe that. And I've said before that this show would be very boring if everyone's <laughs> NDE was exactly the same thing. Right. Right. Many many NDE years uh, come back though, seeing life here on Earth as a sort of a matrix illusion. And you see life on Earth as being very, and I do too, as seeing I seeing life on Earth as being very important. And uh, very um, worthy of our full participation. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Well, you know, everybody's experienced a little piece of heaven in this life, so you know it's possible. 
And you know from certain kinds of experiences in your life, those ones you associate with that kind of bliss and stuff, that um, you would love to be able to hold on to that and to make that the standard for your life, you know, all the time. Now, I like to talk about the the fact that when we go about our daily life, uh, and if you're somebody who's on this path of discovery, uh, of spiritual discovery, that that uh, you perceive yourself possibly as being a spiritual being, but for the most time, you got to pay the rent and you got to go to work and you've got kids to take to soccer practice and you've got all that human stuff uh, going on. Mm-hmm. And and so every once in a while, you grab a hold of this experience of bliss when you uh, see your child uh, uh, performing in a school play or when you uh, get a, uh, a promotion or when you have a, a wonderful moment in nature with your family, that kind of thing. And so uh, being able to expand on that is really difficult to do. It slips away so quickly because the rent is due or your mortgage payment or something, right? And what I like to talk about is turning that equation around uh, completely and experiencing life primarily as a spiritual being who is a passenger in this vehicle. And the material world, then, is presenting itself to you as a result of what you're projecting out into it. Um, we will always have the nature of the human world going on out there, right? The, the circumstances of today's uh, um, geopolitical map are the same thing as we would have experienced in ancient Rome, you know? So there's always that kind of good and evil and justice and injustice and stuff going on in the human realm. Our job is to identify with ourselves as the eternal and to kind of transcend then the the material difficulties of life in a way that we can reconnect with what we really are. It's kind of a Gnostic idea is, is what I have, kind of being separated from heaven for a while here like lightning in a bottle kind of, mm-hmm. and wanting to get back to that. And so this understanding, this perception of life as me being a spiritual being for whom the material is arising in very fortuitous ways of life not happening to you, but life happening for you all the time, I think is the, is the way that I like to express it to people so that they can try to live that in their life. Right. How do you, how do you define real evil, though? I mean, you're like your skinheads that attacked you. I mean, the, is that just, uh, is that the absence of good, or an absence of consciousness or understanding? Or is it, is there, a, like the Manichaeans believed, a, a, a duality that puts uh, good against evil and evil against good on a, on an equal footing on this earth? Yeah, I, I believe something like that, uh, definitely, that it's, but it, that it is a human thing. It's a human experience because in all three of my near death experiences and every one that I've ever heard, at some point in them, the experiencer is completely enfolded in pure love and has this experience of this transcendent loving unity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you, when you come back to this world, and you start to experience, uh, you know, a jerk or an aggressive person or war or unfairness, injustice, evil, 
all of that kind of stuff. It clearly is because of the absence of love. It's because, and this is interesting because I heard Marianne Williamson on a debate the other night talking about this very thing, that uh, if hate is what's being used to manipulate people, what we need for it is to, to resolve it is love. And yes. so uh, to me that's what evil is, is the absence of love or the, the inability to express love. And so our job here as human beings is to remove the obstacles to love in our lives and in the world as much as possible. They were talking this morning on NPR about the Japanese going back to whaling, even though the whale meat is polluted from what we've dumped in the ocean and the Japanese don't particularly care about eating whale meat anymore, but they're going to do it anyway because it's part of a sick tradition that they're... Uh, Reenacting, right? And, I, and there's there's always been such traditions, you know. Yeah, always existed. Ter- terrible lack of empathy with other human creatures in in this world, uh, and and we're driving many species to extinction on that account. Right, and and I, I have a couple things to say about that. One is that we're also here on Earth to realize the sentience of all creatures that we are all the same from the same source. Uh, animals, sea creatures and stuff, all have uh, highly advanced intelligence based on their perceptions, on their ability to perceive. They've all, you know, a whale perceives a completely different world than we do and is highly advanced and intelligent within that world. If, if we could really experience that, we'd realize, like many indigenous cultures have uh, through the millennia <clears throat> with their um, associating or identifying with uh, the animal world, <clears throat> the spirits of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that it's bad, it's terrible, it's awful. But it's not that bad and terrible and awful when you realize that uh, that time is a function of being human. Uh, it's like the Hindus have the yugas, you know, this massive wheel that turns with four 650,000-year-long cycles. You know, and you come all the way around and the world regenerates itself. If you're able to step out of that uh, whole system and just sit in a timeless uh, a kind of continuum and witness it, like I believe that that uh, we are able to do extra-dimensionally or on the other side, uh, then you see this whole thing happening as a function of being human. And these are the kinds of things that happen in this world. And like I said, our job is to remove the obstacles to love so that the radiance, so that the heavenly aspect of life can come through. Um, the realization of what's happening to the whales and the, the um, instantaneous understanding of it globally thanks to the Internet and to expanding global consciousness, which we did, consciousness is definitely expanding, you know. My coffee cup is about to start talking to me here in a minute. <laughs> You know, the, um, we are we're like, actually like Alice growing. In Wonderland, the little bottle that said "Drink me, drink me." Right, <laughs> but we're actually growing. We're actually expanding consciously uh, into the universe in, a, in a greater ways than we ever have before, and that's the nature of of spiritual evolution, I believe. Yeah. How does uh, meditation help in in all of this? 
Well, like I said, you know, I had the three near-death experiences, and none of them uh, thoroughly convinced me <laughs> enough. I didn't know very much about any kind of uh, any kind of uh, community of experiencers, and so I just lived this kind of semi-conscious life. And it wasn't until I had a death of the ego, so to speak, when really my material life fell apart. It happened around 9/11 too, and I was in Manhattan at the time and had an experience that was extra-dimensional uh, that day. That sent me off into a whole different life. I got a, a little cabin on the upper Delaware River in Pennsylvania, on the Pennsylvania-New York border, and I started to sit on a rock by the edge of the river. I, I kid you not. Uh, for years and years. And uh, that was when the near-death experiences crystallized within me, was sitting in meditation. And at any moment... By entering into meditation, which is being able to witness the way that my human mind works from a safe place, a spiritual perspective, so to speak, um, I can detach and enter into an experience of the oneness that is very similar to what I experienced in the near-death instances. So it's the way that you can approach or you know, at least stick your head into heaven's window every once in a while by meditating. I, I recommend it highly, and I go into it in the, the latest book, too, in some detail for people that don't feel comfortable doing it or don't know a good way to do it. Uh, I, I go into uh, it quite a bit in my presence uh, section. It, it can give you a real insight into the nature of time as well. Yes, and, you know, like my... Uh, my life review, I recognize now that we live in this eternal moment. I feel the same as I ever have in many ways because I'm always experiencing the now, right? It's the Eckhart Tolle message. So I'm always living in the now. This is where I can, where my life is reflecting my karma and where I can manipulate it, where I can make up for it, where I can build good karma, where I can make the real changes and have the real uh, connection with uh, love in my life. Now, are you going to be, you've just moved from New York to uh, California. Yeah. Are you going to be able to get back to your river again? I hope so. I have a lot of friends there. Uh, we did sell that house, and I'm from the southwest desert. I came from eastern San Diego County originally. So for me, this is like coming home, and, and uh, I have a place that's uh, an Indian uh, um, area, that uh, is my wife and I go to that's absolutely beautiful here in the desert. And I have this similar kind of experiences of sitting uh, with that, that thin membrane between us and the divine that nature provides us. Uh, so I've, I've got a rock here, too. It's just surrounded by cacti <laughs> instead <laughs> of a river. <laughs> well, I get out to Arizona whenever I can, especially in the wintertime, and uh, this there's power in the desert as much as there is in the water. So it's, uh, it, it's been very rewarding for me as well. You, you have, um, three tips for happiness that you mentioned, radical kindness, radical forgiveness, and radical surrender. Could you take a minute for, and explain those? Sure. That, that's from the first book, How to Survive Life and Death. <clears throat> and radical kindness is pretty self-explanatory. If you give it a try, You'll find that unconditional kindness to people, and not being not to, not joining in the um, 
into uh, gossip or sarcasm or something like that, but really authentically being kind with people, it connects you in a way immediately that you may not have understood about the world, that there is this, there's a fabric of kindness alive in the world, and it really will transform your life. Um, a radical... Uh, okay... A radical kindness, radical forgiveness is really the practice of releasing all the stuff that you don't have to carry around with you. You know, other people are going to be, they're going to express their own karma, and you can take that on to yourself and carry it, but you need not do that. And so you, from somebody stepping on your toe to somebody firing you at work or something, as best as you can, practice radical forgiveness and just drop it and move on and just unload it from your heart. Radical surrender is the third part of that. And there's a great uh, metaphor that I heard for it uh, from a Native American uh, story. If you're tired of rowing upstream, turn around. The (laughs) evidence of our lives is that we are here. We're all right. We're, you know, we're alive. We have love in our lives, we have abundance, we have opportunity. This whole thing is carrying you the way that you need to go, reflecting what you are bringing to it. So consciously create good karma in your life, and the world will just open up and show you where to go next. As you rat- it's Surrender as a strategy, really. It's not a, it's not a detrimental thing at all. Oh, that's excellent. Folks can find you at Art, Faith, and the Coco Lion. Is that true? Yeah, robertkopecky.blogspot.com. Excellent, excellent site. So much uh, interesting material there. Thank Robert, you. we are unfortunately out of time for this, for uh, today, but uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And Thank um, you, Lee. And yeah. uh, I hope people will go out and, uh, well, they'll find your books on your website, I'm sure. And... Uh, just to tell the audience if they'd like to listen to the show again or any of our past shows, including uh, the one Robert was on before, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For information on IONS and the upcoming IONS conference in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, check out that website at iands.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.